Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the rabbit holes we all too frequently find ourselves spiraling down, and the concept that knowledge is power, but how rarely we apply this idea to our internal lives. I've been thinking about our dedicated efforts to educate our children to successfully embrace the challenges that lie ahead, but our neglect to prepare them for the heartache and emotional turmoil they're certain to encounter. And I've been thinking about resilience and our ability to actually learn the skills required to be resilient when life's difficult moments come knocking at our door. My guest today is Cheryl Bradshaw. She is the author of How to Like Yourself, a powerful self-esteem guide for teens, and the Resilience Workbook for Teens activities to help you gain confidence, manage stress, and cultivate a growth mindset. Cheryl is a psychotherapist and expert speaker with years of experience successfully working with teens, teaching them to embrace who you are, bounce back from adversity, and achieve your full potential. Welcome, Cheryl, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. So, Cheryl, the, the first question I want to tackle is, do you feel the landscape is different today for teens? Are they experiencing more stress and anxiety and depression and lower self-esteem? Has something changed? For me, I definitely see that there are a lot of commonalities throughout the years, throughout people's lives, throughout generations. But we have to kind of be realistic and look at the landscape teens are faced with now, that things that they might be facing that we just never really had to think about in the same way. And of course, everyone knows, everyone's talking about it all the time, but the aspects of social media and the increasing busyness of all of our lives, it definitely has an impact for sure. Do you think they're feeling more, a stronger or deeper sense of pressure and, and of perfection in all areas from their physicality to their external performance in school and, and socially? I think there's definitely this sort of, um, you know, generally our culture seems to be moving in this direction of do more with less and everyone needs to be the super high achieving kind of uh, lifestyle. So I think there certainly is this sort of ongoing, you know, every grade has to be better than last, every generation has to be better than the last, and grades suffering a bit from that sort of inflation, and uh, even our school and education systems kind of going through those same uh, growing pains. Is There's been a lot of pressure to move things better, faster, stronger, and it's just a sort of a fact of life. At some point, that caps out, but we keep pushing. And I think the generation we're currently seeing right now is right kind of caught in the, the threshold of that. So there's all this pressure to keep doing and being and growing. And at the same time, not a lot of talk about what that really means for uh, our human nature, what makes us human and the simple realities of sort of where uh, where it makes sense to say, okay, actually, we are sometimes in an okay place and doing our uh, reasonable and or peak performance and we don't have to keep pushing and maybe we're actually okay just the way that we are. And I don't think we sometimes look to see what's on the other side of that conversation because there's so much, you know, excitement and pressure to keep pushing all the time that sometimes we don't kind of stop and say, when, when is it enough to stop pushing and when can we shift the conversation and talk about more things like acceptance and vulnerability and our inner relationship with ourselves. 
So yeah, it's definitely a bit of a balance, and I think we're we're sort of seeing that in the generation that's currently going through this. Is they're they're really kind of stuck in the middle, I think. Yeah, the goalpost keeps getting moved. So there's never mm-hmm. that moment where you're in the moment and saying, "Oh, okay, this is okay. <laughs> this is I did pretty good. Let's let's be mm-hmm. here and experience and enjoy this." So I found your first book. Um, in a serendipitous manner, I was wandering through the library looking for something else. And I can't remember where I was in the teen section, but all of a sudden I, I saw your book and was drawn to it and read it and loved it and thought, ah, oh, you know, this lack of self-esteem is so prevalent, uh, not only for teens, but for adults, that it is at the root of so many stresses uh, in people's lives. And so I was so excited to learn about your new book, The Resilience Workbook for Teens. And maybe we can um, talk about just a quick definition of what resilience is and how it maybe differs from grit and self-esteem. Yeah, so that was certainly one of my big challenges in setting out to write the resilience workbook for teens was I wanted to make sure I was writing a book that actually focused and and built the strategies uh, around resilience. And the more I started to look into it, the more I realized the word resilience is a little bit of everything in lots of different contexts. And I wanted to make sure that um, in the psychological context, in the way I work with it in counseling and working with people in therapy, um, that we were really kind of getting at the root of, of what that is. So resilience means being able to withstand difficult times, challenging times, and adversity. And when I started to dig into how that really comes together, you know, if we break that down, I turned to the research. And when we look at the research on resiliency, um, there are certain tools that researchers will use to make sure they're actually measuring it. And there are a bunch of different tools, and I've analyzed and looked at which ones um, showed the most uh, accuracy and validity. And one of the ones that stood out was called the Connor Davidson Resilience Scale. And looking at what it broke down in each of the items that it measured, there turned out to be kind of 10 general themes, um, but just overall in general, it looked at self-efficacy, sense of humor, uh, secure attachment to others, other people having the ability to adapt to change, looking at commitment, control, and thinking of change as a challenge, as well as patience, and the ability to tolerate stress and pain, as well as optimism and faith. So I took each of those bits and pieces and broke them down in the book into five main goals. First goal of the book is around adapting to change. So we talk about how the brain is sort of what's called plastic. So a plastic brain means that it has the ability to grow and change. And sometimes when we think we just are a certain way or we can't help something, um, it's actually not true. And that we can, just like building muscles and going to the gym and exercising, we can use our brain to help grow and change and uh, change our stories and change our habits. And then we look at uh, the second goal, which is this idea of overcoming adversity. And when we hit difficult times in our life, we get into this space where we're really kind of put under this stress. And one of the things that we talk about in the book is really, you mentioned as well, this sort of difference around grit and growth mindset. Um, And it ends up being part of resilience. So it's sort of like resilience overarches as an umbrella over top of that concept. It lives within it. It's part of it and it's multifaceted. So grit and growth mindset is asking people to look at uh, how we see the world. 
How do we see ourselves as part of the world? And how do we see uh, our ability to shift or change within that space? And if we believe, which is the truth of the way the world is, that we can always learn and change and grow and get better and get through things, that's that growth mindset. And grit is talking about our ability to really dig in and sit through those difficult, uncomfortable times in our lives and be able to still do it anyway. So then we build in a few extra exercises that help us practice what it feels like to be super uncomfortable and then sit with that feeling, breathe through it, different ways to manage those emotions uh, and overcome that, that feeling of adversity. So then we go into step three, the third goal of the book, which is this finding your strength. And this sort of probably ties most closely to my first book, How to Like Yourself, because as we find our strength, we also start to connect with our inner world. So we're starting to build here in the book, this part is more about building our relationship with ourselves, because when we can talk to ourselves kindly and compassionately in our own heads, that's the part in our life where we can start to really find that strength, uh, support ourselves and be our biggest, our own biggest cheerleader to get through things. So we talk about the issues around vulnerability. We look at this idea of writing a letter to yourself to get through those difficult times. We talk about um, taking chances and then getting through our biggest fears and things like that. So then we move into the fourth goal of the book, which is around keeping perspective. And keeping perspective is this interesting aspect of resilience I started to even learn more about as I did the research and was writing this book, which is looking at the fact that things that we don't always think to assume with resilience um, are really important, like humor, and being able to just sometimes sit back and laugh, even when it feels like everything's falling apart. And this idea that um, one book that really stood out to me, uh, just I ran into recently, is this idea that positive thinking doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out all right, but it's really truly connecting with and understanding that no matter what happens, you'll be okay. And then we look at the fifth goal, which is around staying focused. So staying focused is then, okay, so if you're able to sit through everything, if you're able to connect with yourself, if you're able to be your biggest cheerleader, and then you get in the middle of it, sometimes things take longer or last longer than we wish they did. And how do you set yourself up for success? Um, How do you notice if you're sort of starting to avoid? How do you deal, especially now with that inner critic? Um, And then how do you put that all together? So that's the idea of uh, resilience in as much of a nutshell as I could take this very, very big concept and and boil it down uh, to really put the activities together that are really going to hopefully build some practical, real life, use tomorrow, use today skills. So as you're speaking, I'm thinking of two things. I keep hearing you say we, and that's something that is so evident in the book that it is we. You're right there with the teens, right there with the reader who's working through this book. Um, and you can feel that in every sentence, pretty much in every page. And the other thing is, you said, I turned to the research. And that reminds me of Brene Brown. And the commonality in the sense of you also personally had this major shift while you were teaching um, that redirected your career and your focus. Um, what was that like when you were teaching high school and dissecting frogs? You're right. It was such a, a big moment in my life. I'd always found human interaction and human psychology fascinating. Um, and originally, I thought maybe the best way to delve into that and to work with people and have the relationships and kinds of things I wanted to have, uh, the best place for me was 
uh, in teaching. And so I started off in my career in that direction and was really having an excellent time, uh, really was enjoying everything and, and still do. I still love teaching. I think that's where my writing has come from, that same place in my heart. But one of the things that happened was one day while teaching this grade 10 science class, we were doing a frog dissection, and during the lab, one of the female students ended up collapsing to the floor, and she ended up seizing. And definitely in an emergency situation like this, me and the other teacher was in the room. Um, she ended up evacuating the students, and I went and called paramedics while then stayed with the student. And, you know, as watching this all unfolding, you're not really sure what's happening. You're not really sure, you know, if what's going on for the student and, the, and their health. And so then as the paramedics arrived and started to, to bring the student back around to consciousness, they started asking her some of the questions that they do, you know, what day is it, what's your name, all those things. And then they asked her um, if she had tried to take her life. And it turned out that she had tried uh, and made an attempt earlier that day and she was suffering the effects of it in the class that we were holding. And in that moment, I just, you know, that sort of feeling when almost that all the sound goes out of the room and all time kind of just stops. And you just have this moment of, oh, my goodness. And your whole world kind of turns and shifts. And so um, the student ended up going, going to hospital and, and being treated, and she ended up being okay. Um, and in, in that, uh, overnight, she sent us a message, uh, myself and the other teachers, saying, I want you to share a message with the class. I know you're going to be talking to them, and I know everyone's probably worried. And I just want you to let them know that if any of them are feeling the same way as I was feeling, to not do what I did and to go and seek help. And so then the next day at the class, you know, the class is all sitting there very somber and solemn. You know, everyone's very concerned, and we're, we're sharing the story with the class and speaking to them now about uh, mental health, something we didn't originally think was going to be part of our curriculum. So as we're sharing this message, saying to the class, she, she wants you to each know to get help and don't do what she did, and, and uh, that was her message, I sort of just saw different heads in the class sort of drop and shoulders slump, and there was just this recognition in the room that there were other students that had clearly resonated with this feeling and whether they felt it themselves or knew someone else who did or whatever the case may be, I could just tell that this was resonating with a lot of people. And I just had this moment of thinking over the last couple of days, last couple of weeks, I've been standing up here at the blackboard teaching about things like the circulatory system. And meanwhile, some of the kids in my class are maybe talking and thinking about the fact of if they want to live to see another day. And I just felt this huge shift for me in where I wanted to be spending my time and my energy in, in going deeper and in helping on that deeper level. And uh, basically, I immediately, um, almost immediately enrolled in a, a master's degree program in uh, counseling psychology and uh, have been working in that area ever since. So yeah, big change, big change for me, big moment. And, and uh, you know, thankful that student is okay. And um, and really, really grateful to have that opportunity arise in, in its own way where hopefully those students got a new message and got um, some hope and maybe in its own way a different kind of resiliency started to appear uh, for both that student herself and maybe those in the class. Well and that student in her message to tell the kids to reach out and ask for help um, that's a theme that also runs through the resilience workbook for teens at every stage you talk a lot about utilizing support um, for with adults and mentors in your life and how do you suggest 
that the teens find that person in their lives if they don't have someone uh, maybe directly in their direct family? Yeah, it's a really big question. And I'm glad you brought that up because some of the biggest parts of research on resiliency uh, does really focus on the huge importance of having supportive people in our lives. Um, so yeah, so how do, how do young people, how does anyone go about finding a supportive adult if maybe they don't have them in their immediate family? And I think the first thing to think about and the message I hope people might hear um, is the idea that you have to, to try. You kind of have to, to, to take that leap and, and there's sometimes no intermediate step of feeling it out. You know, you can look around and notice some people that you see treating other people with care. Um, and one of the things a lot of people struggle with when they're struggling is this idea that they're not worth uh, the time, that nobody cares, and that uh, nobody's going to be able to help them. And that's sort of that inner critic voice that's showing up. That's, that's a bit of a mirage, and we want to learn to not trust that as the reality. That's just a protective part of ourselves that shows up to try to protect us from being hurt. And so it tells us don't reach out, don't be vulnerable, don't be hurt. And what we're tasked with doing is recognizing through this resilience idea is that we might get hurt along the way. We might reach out to some people that don't know how to help us. And it might end up coming out in a way that's hurtful or that sort of feels um, not uh, supportive. And recognizing that that's not about us, that sometimes people react in that way when they themselves get anxious or they themselves feel overwhelmed. And knowing and acknowledging that might be part of the package as we're searching and looking for our best support people. So sort of recognizing it's going to be a bit of, um, sometimes it's a bit of a shopping experience, even, you know, even with counselors a little bit, even like myself, when you go out and seek help, when you go out and seek even professional help, not every person you meet is going to be your person. And that's okay. And it doesn't mean that you should stop looking. You've got to kind of keep pushing a little bit and advocate for yourself, um, knowing that you're worth it and that you will find there are people out there and you will find your person, but sometimes you've got to keep looking a little bit. Well, I love the balance of this directive in, in the idea that the, the teens um, or the adult who's reading the book is tasked with taking responsibility and being proactive. So, you know, you'll need this in your life. So set out and make this happen. Um, and yet it's all about connection and community as well, because you're not saying you're going this alone. There are people out there. And then one step further that you emphasize utilizing different people for different things. So it's not a one size fit all. There might be one friend or one adult who's great at making things fun if you need uplifting, um, someone else who's trustworthy, who you can confide in. Where did your thinking develop around that? The idea that you really need to set up different types of people in your life to be able to support you at different times in your life. So what's neat about this concept is it has floated around within the counseling community and, and research a little bit on its own. Um, but I certainly had it driven home even more. Uh, you mentioned her earlier as Brene Brown. Um, I think there was something I either watched or read that she also emphasized that um, and really sort of reminded me how important it, it really is to this kind of idea. She didn't say it in so many words, but not put all our eggs in one basket. And this idea that some people are going to have different strengths 
And we need to be a little bit realistic as well about what we expect of other people. And this also, I mean, tying in a slightly different research here is actually coming from couples counseling research, um, a little bit of Gottman's ideas, which is in general, no one person can really meet every single one of our needs as humans. We're not built that way. We're not wired that way. We're built for community. Um, and every single person is their own unique fingerprint. So each person that's going to be in our life, we're going to interact with and feel slightly different as we're around them. Um, and different people will be at different stages of their own lives in terms of what they're able to offer us in terms of support, um, in terms of wisdom. And some people are going to be our fun people, take our minds off it, go out and have a night out uh, or you know watch a movie or have some laughs. And that's a different kind of strength. And some people in our lives might be that wise, reflective, kind of offering a different perspective kind of person. And those people are amazing to have. And some people are going to be, you know, that <laughs> when you want them. Um, I actually just heard it on your interview I was listening to uh, yesterday, the one with Lori Gottlieb, who writes, you should talk to someone. You guys were talking about that. She mentioned it around some friendship advice she called, I think, idiot advice. But oh, it's yeah. funny, kind of tongue in cheek. <laughs> and, uh, and this idea that some friends are just going to, like, support you. Like, yeah, you really dodged a bullet with that guy. And I thought that was funny that sometimes you need to hear that in the moment and um, making sure you step back and reflect on the bigger picture of your life. But sometimes you'll have your cheerleader friends, and sometimes all you need to hear is, yeah, you were right, they were wrong. And in the moment, that can feel nice and supportive too, so long as we have the bigger picture awareness that sometimes we need to step back and put all the puzzle pieces together. So yeah, there's all sorts of people that are going to be in our life, and some are going to play different roles. So you start the book with a quiz and tell the kids it's a no-judgment moment. And I know that's difficult for everyone, but is that something that's especially difficult for teens to not judge themselves in in the moment? I would say especially. I mean, our teen years are this time where we're trying to invent ourselves, where we're trying to uh, figure out who we are. And as we do that, you know, throughout our lives, we tend to do it. But the most of this happens in teen years where when we try to invent ourselves and figure out who we are, we look to others and we look outside of ourselves as mirrors as reflections to try to figure out what they see so that we can try to figure out then what maybe we see and we're constantly bouncing inside world to outside world back and forth in to out in and out like that and so as we're doing this bouncing in and out we're kind of inadvertently getting exposed to judgment and exposed to these ideas of comparison um, as we try to figure all this out. And especially in our teen years, we sometimes don't have someone in our lives who sits us down and tells us that oftentimes other people's judgment, in fact, almost always other people's judgment, has very little to do with us. And it often has to do with their own stuff they're working through or their own lens they see the world through. And without this sort of awareness, and sometimes take that, that takes years or decades even to fully download and understand that uh, people's judgments and comparisons are often sort of symptoms of everyone else's journey as well. We are quite vulnerable to this idea of, of what judgment is, what good enough is, um, and where we fall on that uh, kind of made up spectrum, but that when we're teens feels especially, especially real. And that brings us to the brain, <laughs> yes, because Part of that is in the narratives, right? The narratives that we develop and the stories we develop around um, who we are, who they are, who we're supposed to be, how we compare. And you mentioned earlier in the interview that our 
the plasticity in our brain and our brain's ability to change and shift. Um, but you spend some time in the book talking about how our brains don't really like to do that. And I, I want to focus a little in on that. And there's a great exercise you have so simple, like all the exercises in your book are so simple, but so fantastic, because they give the reader or the participant such clarity as to the elements that you're teaching or trying to explain. And one is crossing your arms and crossing them one way and then crossing the other way. And you say your brain has decided that the way you do it is already fine. So there's no point in learning to do it another way. Your brain wants to keep you running at peak efficiency. So it doesn't want you to change something unless there's a really good reason for it. So how is the brain helping in that way? And then how do we go about convincing our brains to change when um, they really aren't doing us uh, the best service? Yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite exercises too. And um, of all the ones I actually made sure was in both books, that one is in both books, How to Like Yourself and the Resilience Workbook, because it's so easy. As you mentioned, it's so simple. It's so impactful to see in this real-time experiment how your body sort of rejects this experience. And if anyone's listening right now, you want to try it, just cross your arms and then uncross them and kind of shake it out. And then now go ahead and try to cross them the other way. Um, and just notice how your body and brain reacts. And it's really interesting to see most people are like, oh, this is weird. And like, this is wrong. Like, I want to stop. And um, I have people in my office when I'm doing this that they do like quickly just uncross their arms and they're like, oh, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> um, or like, this is super weird to hold this. And, and they sort of squirm a little bit in their seat. Uh, and everyone has different reactions and responses, but everyone definitely sort of communicates that this definitely feels bizarre. And um, the reason our brains do this is they are trying to, again, sort of protect us. Evolutionarily, uh, brain tissue is what's known in the biology world as uh, expensive tissue. So expensive tissue takes a lot of energy to produce. And when we try to change it, thinking about, you know, our evolutionary roots, uh, living out in you know caveman times when uh, resources might have been slim, our body's kind of constantly trying to conserve a little bit, just in case, just in case there's a drought, just in case there's you know a, a famine and, and we can't get resources to uh, to use this expensive energy. So as we're going through our lives and we sort of learn something and it seems to work and it's not unsafe and everything's going well, our brains kind of download that a little bit and tuck it into the back of our brain and sort of turn it into one of these uh, what's called implicitly learned behaviors or habits. So implicit means that we're not really conscious of it all the time, which is in contrast to explicit, which is this idea that those are the things we are kind of aware of, you know, for learning a new task or thinking about something at top of mind um, or running through our day. There are things we're attuning to and noticing uh, moment to moment. That's the explicit stuff. And we only have a limited amount of space in our minds and in our short-term memory for those explicit activities. So if we want to do all the fun things that humans do, we have to download and push some of this backwards into our implicit memory. So if we want to walk and talk and chew gum and, you know, listen to the birds and, and whatever else we want to do all at the same time, we have to do some of that without really thinking of it actively. So as our brains go through and build this tissue, this expensive tissue, and, and push it backwards into implicit memory, um, it's a lot of work for our brains to kind of pull this up out of the, the depths of our, our learning and undo it all, unravel the sweater, and then knit it all back together. And so it tries to protect us from doing that and really pushes us to prove to it, to prove to our brain and our body that it's worth it. 
And that's where that uncomfortable feeling is, where it pushes back gently and says, like, are you sure you want to spend the effort doing this? And we have to push back and say, yeah, we do. We do want to spend the effort doing this. And we kind of have a little tug of war of that with our body and brain as we go through these new learnings and undoing of old habits. Uh, but it can be done, and it just sort of is this little um, negotiation um, is a nice way to think about it, that you sort of just have to be like, yep, yep, no, we're on the right track. We're okay, brain. We got this. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, you look at the uh, fake news that's happening now and the diametrically opposed positions that people are taking and then digging into so deeply. And in a sense, that's nothing new. You look at science and once they have a hypothesis about something, even back to uh, germs and the idea that when it was discovered by a scientist that, you know, maybe we should wash our hands, that in, in childbirth we are, we're working on cadavers and then we're working on women in childbirth and we're spreading germs. The community didn't want, it wasn't until after his death, that scientist's death, that that was accepted. Because once people have an idea about things, they want to hold on to them. Um, and we see that when people taking a, a political position, even if they're, it's based on something that's not fact, and we present the fact to them, it actually, science shows, recent research, that it makes that person hold on to that belief stronger and more deeply. And um, you had a, another great exercise in the book where you have the reader look at a clock and look at a tissue box and decide that one is better than the other and, and argue for that. And um, it made me realize when I did that exercise uh, that, that, yes, we start to do that at first, but we can be trained not to because I, as a lawyer, we are trained really to do the opposite. You're taught in the, the years of law school to be able to in a second, switch to the other side and argue the opposing side as effectively as you argued the initial side, right? So I thought, oh, like I was, I was fine, which was a little worrying to me as well. You know, switching my allegiance away from the, the tissue box to the clock on, on, a, on a moment's notice. Um, mm -hmm. But exercises like this and awareness like this are so important to understand. And this also runs through the workbook how we typically um, interact with our thoughts and with um, the outside world and that this is something to be aware of and aware of our tendencies and also know that we can change it. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's sort of neat that you bring that up, your own personal experience with that saying like, well, I could do it. And just how cool that you're just showing even right now this idea of plasticity that in having the training that you've had, you've been able to wire your own brain in a way that's allowed you to do this skill that a lot of people do struggle with. So I love that you're kind of proving this little idea of neuroplasticity even as we, we sit here and chat. Um, because if you, if you do, you know, have a friend or someone who's not in your same profession and get them to do this, it's very fun. That's one of my favorite exercises to do in session with clients where they, um, they really do struggle. They're like, no, like now that I've decided the clock is better, it just is. And to become of our own, aware of our own bias to, to fall into this trap is a super important thing. It sounds like you've gone through a lot of uh, interesting training that really shows and can pull out that, uh, that need to have that bias. Um, and it also speaks to, you know, you can tell I definitely have a bit of a fangirl thing going on here for Brene Brown, but she speaks to this a lot as well, is this feeling of allowing ourselves to prove ourselves wrong and to learn in a different way is a vulnerable thing as well. And one of the little exercises in my book also does talk about 
vulnerability and and because it does play into resiliency as well, which is when we are vulnerable and we open up to this experience of potentially being wrong. Um, and I don't dive quite deep as deep as this in in the resilience book, but it's worth speaking to is the idea that when we have this moment of possibly being proven wrong, even to ourselves, it can bring up a lot of stuff for people. Sometimes old traumas, um, you know, even little ones from when we were kids of being told we're wrong or or having challenging or, or critical adults in our lives. And when we get reminded of this feeling of being wrong and that wrong is bad, and then we have these associations we might have accidentally learned as children, when we're faced with that in real life situations, we can get, uh, again, implicitly triggered into these things that make us protect ourselves by holding and digging in even deeper to where we already were. So part of it is, is really getting deep into some of our, our awareness of ourselves, where our trigger spots are. And one of the neat things is to notice when we think our own triggers are you know, super important, they're the most important things in the world, as we all obviously feel because it's our own life. We can start to notice, even just by looking around us, that, again, this is also arbitrary, um, that every single person has different issues that they're super, super passionate about, and those usually tie into things that have happened in our own lives. So just noticing that every person is different, every passion is different, every trigger is different, we can also then uh, buy into that uh, uh, reality even deeper that we can even change our own trigger spaces and our own vulnerabilities. Uh, which takes a bit more long-term harder work of going backwards sometimes and noticing where we might have accidentally learned those beliefs, that it's not okay to be wrong, that we have to be certain all the time, and that vulnerability is bad. And that is one of the reasons I do really love Brene Brown's work, is she really is, is on a mission to break that down in our society and culture. Well, and I think in your work what you do is you make the connections of the physical elements with the thoughts and the emotions and that when people can understand those connections just the awareness itself and the under understanding of how the whole system works is they can take that space um, between the action and the reaction right and they can notice the emotion and say oh wow this is a trigger I'm feeling this but I don't necessarily have to act on it especially if this is an area that I'm aware of and focused on that I want to change and that I can pay attention to my physical response and and utilize that in a way that's going to support me in reacting or not reacting and even when you talk about mindfulness you talk about all of the senses and being aware bringing those alive in in those mindfulness moments of, you know, what are the sensory experiences, not just the internal intellectual or emotional experiences, but what are all of the the aspects that you're experiencing and what ones do you want to utilize and what ones do you maybe want to work on shifting? Yeah, absolutely. Because, and that's what's so neat about the mindfulness movement is it gets us to get back in touch with our bodies, which I think uh, in a big way, our current culture is sort of pretty disconnected from. We, we have a lot of, again, this sort of do more with less kind of idea that keeps coming up in workplaces and schools and in our lives. Uh, we sort of use our intellectual abilities to override sometimes what our bodies are telling us. And uh, the more we stay disconnected from the signals and signs our body uh, is telling us, that can be a big risk factor for things like uh, physical illnesses, um, stress disorders, and, and things that start to show up in our physical bodies too. So 
mindfulness is one of the things that helps us slow down and it helps us reconnect to the little things of what it feels like just to breathe and what it feels like just to listen and not have to do. And when we can slow down like this, when we can breathe slower, feel our bodies move and shift as our lungs go out and in, as we can sort of notice details in the world around us and the space around us that we might have just not paid attention to. It gives us that ability to remember that sometimes the story in our heads and sometimes the fears in our heads are either not as big as we thought or at very least they aren't happening right now. And so many of the fears we think are affecting us in this very moment aren't actually happening to us right in this very moment. And sometimes we suffer unnecessarily by buying into the story our brain is telling us, which is that this is bad now, this is horrible now, this is always going to be bad. And meanwhile, we're actually just sitting at the table having lunch. You know, that we're just, you know, walking down the street, you know. And so to remember that we can give ourselves permission to take these breaks, that there is bad stuff in life. Absolutely. That's why we talk about resilience and how to get through those tough times. But sometimes it's not as pervasive, even as it's currently occurring, as we sometimes let ourselves believe. And so that mindfulness thing kind of slows us down and lets us take these little breaks, uh, which gives us more resiliency to get through even the most big, scary things that life can bring our way. Okay, so this is why I'm a fangirl of your work, Cheryl Bradshaw, is because you focus on the why and the how, which I think is so often left out in all of this. Oh, we should meditate. Oh, we need to be mindful. Oh, we need to go. But the how and why are the critical elements. And um, two areas that I want to talk about the, about during the interview that make sure we get to. So I'm going to jump right into them now. And one is what you talk about um, distress tolerance and the difference between the physical and the emotional. Yeah, distress tolerance is one of my favorite skills. And one of the things I think is honestly the most important, um, one of the most important things we can ever teach young people. Because I don't think it's something we do implicitly, or sorry, explicitly teach. We, We sort of leave it a little bit up to fate, which I find a little bit concerning. When we have resources and information that can tell us how to teach this, Um, and it is actually okay and easy enough to teach as a concept. I really think we need to be doing a bit more work as a society and culture on this. So what distress tolerance is, is basically in a nutshell, it's our ability to sit with uncomfortable feelings and emotions and uh, tolerate that in terms of um, not having to get busy not having to avoid, not having to run away, um, not having to cover it up, and being able to breathe through it, allow it to flow through us, and realizing, you know, these ideas of this too shall pass. This isn't permanent, and I can get through this. And so the stress tolerance, the interesting thing is we do tend to, to speak a little bit more about it as a society and culture in our sort of physical aspects you know, doing a tough workout or, you know, running these marathons or these tough mutter kind of races that are so popular these days, that there's a lot of focus on, you know, pushing yourself and, and finding your limits and you can do it. And in that very supportive, uh, sometimes that cheerleader way, which is very important. 
And yet when we hit the emotional stuff, you know, we all got a little bit squirrely and, and we try to change the subject and we, you know, if someone's crying near us, we immediately want to cheer them up and talk them out of their emotions and, and speed up all of the emotional discomfort in our lives. Whereas um, just like we have to do with our physical bodies and beings of learning to tolerate some of the discomforts that come with being human, that the emotional side of it is equally, if not sometimes even more important to be able to sit with and, and feel and truly experience, not feel that we have to run away from, that it builds our strength and it builds our resilience uh, to be able to do that. And two, it brings back the way that our friend, the brain, is operating in this realm um, and, and how it is reacting the same way, but yet they're different realms. Where in the physical, it's great for our brain to say, okay, your hand is burning and it's on a hot stove, take it off. Um, and yet the brain has the same reaction with the, an emotional discomfort, right? So, so we have to acknowledge that, that our brain's going to be like, oh, bad thing, bad thing, run away. Um, but that isn't actually... Uh, what's going to be best for us in that situation. And that's going to lead me to the next thing because you talk about too, and I think this gets tricky, um, and I forget what you call it, but how we need to learn to process them and that balance kind of between experiencing it, but not getting stuck in it and going down the rabbit hole with it. And I guess in connection to that is what you talk about, the thought traps. Um, so that that combination of we don't want the emotion to drown us. We want to be able to control it in a manner, but we don't want to be, be controlling it in a way where we aren't experiencing it. So what does a, a balanced approach to that look like? So that's a really, a really neat uh, space to make sure you're, you're so right on this, of, of tying this in, which is one of the words around here is what we call direct discomfort versus indirect discomfort. And it ties into the thought traps and the rabbit holes kind of idea. So thought traps, um, our brain has certain little uh, biases that it likes to fall into. Um, another word for them I like uh, use a lot recently is called protectors. And these are sort of little parts of our brain and our little inner voice that shows up very much like the movie Inside Out. Uh, awesome movie if you haven't seen it. It's actually delves into a lot of real um, neuroscience and psychology in a, in a beautiful metaphor. Um, and, and what happens is these little voices and little parts of ourselves sort of show up to try to protect us. But sometimes, because they're just a part of ourselves and they're not our whole self, they kind of get a little skewed in terms of reality. And so they make us want to believe things are way worse than they are as a way to protect us from actually going to that space. Um, and the problem with this, kind of left unchecked, is as our brain goes into this and, and sort of pulls all these different fears deeper and deeper and deeper without us sort of saying, hold on, like, hold on, let's, you know, breathe, let's slow down, let's just look at all this. It can make things uh, seem much bigger than they are. And even though our brain's trying to help us by keeping us safe so we don't get into trouble um, uh, with this distress tolerance idea, it can make it much more challenging with the emotional distress tolerance than the physical where, you know, if we sprain our ankle, it's not like our left arm then starts hurting, being like, well, hold on, your left arm might hurt too. You know, we're very focused on the one area and we're able to sometimes keep it much more controlled. But because so much of our emotional life is subjective and overlapped, when we start to dive into uh, experiencing and allowing an uncomfortable emotion, sometimes it wants to just drag along behind it all the other possible times we've ever felt similarly or we've ever had a similar fear or that we've ever been hurt before. 
And as we're sort of faced with this sort of jumping on monkey on the back effect, we kind of get into this, I mentioned at the beginning, this direct discomfort versus indirect discomfort. And the direct discomfort is what we want to allow to happen with the stress tolerance. We want to be able to sit with the thing in the moment that's happening. So let's say your dog has passed away. This is going to be upsetting. This is something you should feel sadness about. This is normal. This is healthy. This is human. It is still uncomfortable. But while we're allowing this emotion to flow through us, because it's important to the human experience and to honoring our emotions and our experiences, sometimes we get this carry-on effect of, okay, here's all the other times you've ever been sad or experienced loss or experienced um, something that you're worried about in the future losing. And then it sort of gets this indirect discomfort, which is your brain wants you to then try to think about all these other things at the same time. And we want to just gently remind the brain, hey, brain, you don't have to do this right now. You don't have to work so hard. I know this is scary. I know this is difficult and this is difficult to sit with. But we only need to do this one thing right now. We only need to focus and allow ourselves to feel this one thing right now. We'll get to the other stuff later. And there's a little space in the book to even jot down some of the fears or some of the worries or some of the other issues you might still need to come back to as a way to give yourself permission to let that go in the moment and say, I'll come back to that when I have more space and more energy, more resources. But right now, just this one thing, just this one problem, and we're going to then apply the direct discomfort, allow us to experience it, and then put in that distress tolerance, um, distress tolerance so that we can actually feel and uh, be human, be human beings. It's just so important. It's so powerful, I think, to recognize, I think you call this sometimes the, the webs or the schemas. Um, and what ours tend to be, right? Especially once we've gotten to the adult stage, like those are, those are uh, written in non-erasable ink, right? Those webs and the connection of all of these past experiences and beliefs about them and narratives about them. Another element of that that you bring up is that these schemas are state dependent. So sort of it depends what mood we're in, in when something happens or we experience something as to which web's going to be brought up to support our reaction or our narrative that we develop. Yeah, so the way our brain is wired um, is a fun little thing. It's a, what fires together, wires together. So when we have similar experiences, the little cells in our brains called neurons uh, start to connect and build these little bridges between them. And the more they get used, they fire. And the more they sort of get used and fire together, those bridges become bigger and stronger. Uh, now, remembering with neuroplasticity, even the really, really strong bridges, we can work and train and relearn and, and reprogram. Uh, sometimes the longer they've been there, it takes a little more work to go through that just because the bridges are stronger. But uh, it certainly can be done. So as we're noticing that our brain likes to work in connections and patterns, you know, the same way as if right now I tell you to think of the color red and then think of the very next thing that comes to mind after the color red, what comes to mind for you? Well, those red hot candies. Those red hot, hot tamales. Candies. Yeah. <laughs> tamales. Yeah, 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 right? So for you, that's a really strong connection. Maybe there's something your childhood, maybe they're your favorite, whatever it might be. For me, it's a red apple. I think that's probably from kindergarten, maybe on the, you know, the letter board, whatever it is. You I led a healthier life, have... clearly, as a child. <laughs> So I have clients to give all sorts of answers to this kind of question, and there's no right answer, but it's just showing the, the breadth of uh, types of connections that we get and showing that when we have one 
theme in our mind. And another one immediately kind of gets uh, highlighted and um, brought up into mind as well. So when we're going through our lives and we're learning all these things and, and our concepts and experiences get interwoven like this in these little webs, that is one of the things that will show up when we think of something sad we'll tend to think of another sad thing right after it. As soon as we think of something red, we think of an apple or these hot candies. You get the the same effect when you think of a sad memory. You'll then usually think of another sad memory. But we can equally kind of capitalize on this same experience where then if we think of a happy memory, we'll next usually think of another happy memory. So we can kind of use it in our, in our own uh, favor as well. So it, sometimes it's just recognizing that this is just one of the things of being a human, living in a human body with a human brain, uh, that sometimes we can feel like there's something wrong with us, that our brains do this, that we get stuck in these moods or whatever it might be. And just sort of backing that up and being like, no, no, that's how, that's how your brain's supposed to work. And that's okay. And, and just taking out the heaviness of it sometimes gives you the ability to step back and then sometimes then change the channel. So if you do start to get in one of those webs, you can kind of hit that channel changing button, be like, you know what, on to the next thing. And if you're really skilled at indirect discomfort, you can go from the red hot tamale to a sad memory <laughs> and yep. some belief in your failings. So um, what what I think is so amazing about your work is the tool that you give to the teens and any reader um, because I I think that so often uh, you read a book and you get the ideas about something or you have an intellectual understanding of the concepts but working through this workbook not only as I mentioned in the beginning of the interview are you right there with us but we are changing so it, it's not like oh we're, we're learning about something and then we're going to go out you know we are going to practice later but through working through the workbook, we've made the changes. And I usually hate exercises in any kind of book. Um, I was talking about that in another interview. How this author said, well, I put all the exercises in the back because I know a lot of people, once they get to an exercise, they just stop um, and they stop reading because they don't, they don't want to do it. It's too much pressure. Or they don't like it. So I put them in the back and they can go to them. Um, and I could understand what she meant at the time. But the way that you've constructed this book, it is so different. Um, and the focus and clarity that you get from the experience is immediate. And I love that it parallels and it's reflective of what you are communicating and the transformation that you're inspiring, that the way that the book is organized um, is a reflection of that. So well, thank you so much. That's, I really appreciate that. And for people that maybe are not readers and are still not believing that this workbook is something that's for them, um, maybe just in the last couple of minutes, you have an app. Um, and if maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, my app, it's, uh, it's called Positive You. So positive and then the letter U at the end. Um, but it's this idea of making a positive uh, list about yourself. And again, we were talking about the brain getting wired and bogged down in certain ways. Sometimes uh, it wants to only tell us our negative things. And so we need to, again, go to the gym, our brain gym, and uh, actively start working on firing together and then wiring together these new associations, which are equally true, but sometimes our brain doesn't always believe it. Um, so when we are uh, going through that uh, list of trying to come up with these positive things about ourselves, uh, the app itself is just a nice place to keep it all. It gives you a couple of suggestions, too, because sometimes it can be hard to get started. You're like, I don't even know where to start. 
there's a couple of preloaded ideas that um, some are universally um, pretty true for just about every human being as by virtue of being human. Um, so there should be something in there for everyone. And then you can kind of use those to um, branch off of and then think of your own unique abilities and skills and talents and accomplishments and just load them in there. And then it just sort of gives you this ability to just quickly on your phone, like you're kind of doing a little prescription, go through it and get your brain to reread them and you kind of flick through them and um, and just spend a moment thinking about some of the good things about yourself, which I think we're not always invited to do as often as we really should be. Um, so the first book, How to Like Yourself, really encourages you to um, actively get your brain to do that work as well. Uh, so Positive View, that's the app that you can download. It's free. Um, it's sort of a nice complement to both books. And you can store and load that information and, and review it uh, as often as you possibly can to help your brain really strengthen those connections between uh, so many of the good things that are out there about yourself. Well, and you encourage teens to utilize their phones in, in throughout the book as far as taking pictures of the things that they've worked on and bringing them with them so they have them at all times. So this really is something that you're going to use to prepare for things in the future and have to rely on when something does happen um, that's challenging to get through and, and you're going to be prepared. Yeah, I talk about it a lot with my clients is this concept of getting in your own way in a positive way where sometimes again back to that arm crossing exercise when we have something that um, our brains are like, yeah, no, that's a lot of work. Maybe we just shouldn't. Um, because you're up against that phenomenon, you kind of have to actively get in your own way. And that is breaking down the barriers uh, to make it as easy as possible for yourself to do the new things that you're trying to learn. Because if you can put it, you know, right on your phone, you can't help but see it as you're flicking through your screens. Um, you have an alarm set on your phone. You can't help but get that going off every day so that you have to um, remind yourself to go through it. It's really the, one of the best uh, ways to make sure you're, you're kind of fighting against that um, arm crossing, this is weird uh, rejection kind of feeling. I love that. And I love that it, it's in sync with what teens want to do. Right? They want to mm -hmm. analyze and step and then get in the way and disrupt. So it, it's perfect. Well, yeah. thank you so much. Um, where can people get the book? And Yeah, so, so How to Like Yourself and the Resilience Workbook for Teens are both available at uh, every uh, major bookstore. So Barnes & Noble, at, um, in Canada, Chapters Indigo, um, online at Amazon.com.ca. Um, and How to Like Yourself is also fun. It's also an, an audiobook version. Um, so you, if you're an Audible fan and you want to listen to your books, you can listen to How to Like Yourself. Um, and uh, I think we both are um, in Kindle format uh, for eBooks as well. All right, well. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to, to come on the show and, and talk about the workbook. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. I really have enjoyed chatting with you. You're great. Uh, great show. Thank you. Thanks so okay. much. Bye-bye. Great. All right. Bye-bye.